good to see you again. It's all these lovely faces popping up. <clears throat> we'll begin our, our sitting together. And as I, I see uh, all of us are arriving, uh, you, you know, and uh, I'm reminded as I see you that we're distributed in so many places across the world. So this uh, web of connected practice um, uh, is really important to know right now and how we're, we're sitting together. So please enjoy this, this few minutes of silence.
the history of Buddhist thought. Uh, maybe the uh, mythology of of Buddhism. There are thought to be many Buddhas, innumerable awakened ones. Uh, the Buddha of our time that we sometimes think of as the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, is the Buddha of silence that teaches through silence. So as we sit together, this is maybe closer to a gentle, heartfelt performance art than it is to an instrumental yogic activity to get some value. We're enacting that Buddha of silence with our own body, our own heart, our own mind. We're performing as that Buddha as we sit to settle into and appreciate this life. And all the others here together are offering themselves to you, just as you are offering yourself to them in this respectful and deep and profound and vulnerable silence, setting aside all of our roles and ideas, all of our successes and failures, our narratives and fears, and to meet in that great space of silence and stillness and presence. Let's begin with the four practice principles um, in an order that's different than we, we sometimes do. Uh, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. 
caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. I'm glad to see so many people arriving today, especially since uh, what I sent out may not have been very appealing <laughs> in some ways. But I hoped that it would be inviting uh, because it spoke uh, some, some truth about where we find ourselves these days. Uh, I know that Many of you are quite familiar with this uh, quotation that I sent, and especially the quite famous uh, line, uh, which I offered you as a, a sort of a koan. Uh, Your pain is the breaking of the, the shell that encloses your understanding. <clears throat> and to sit with it without uh, attempting to understand it too quickly and let it unfold a bit. There are the few lines that follow I'll repeat uh, again and, th and then we'll go further. Gibran uh, uh, says, even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart and you would accept the seasons of your heart. Even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields, and you would watch with serenity through the winters of your grief. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. And then the turn line each moment life as it is the only teacher do we really understand the profound nature of that poetic line we we chant it often each moment life as it is the only teacher sounds good but can you come to know this in your bones? That generous and terrible surrender. Each moment, life as it is. As we listen to the news, as we read the paper, as we watch the feeds on our phones and computers. Because life will be as it is no matter what we hope, what we've come to expect. And there are no circumstances under which it is wise to refuse such a life. We hopefully mature and learn to respond to it wisely and with compassion. That's the next line. Being just this moment, being intimate with, meeting this moment, it's compassion's way. Your pain is the breaking. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. If we meet it, there's an opening. You know, last week, um, Ifrat spoke to some of this as she was recalling what it was like to listen to 
Resma Menachem and Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, when they were engaging each other in this really uh, lively and fierce conversation, I, I listened to it as well. And they were offering a stark reality check. I mean, it said plainly and, and personally, I'll say it as if just for me, my whiteness will not protect me against what is unfolding, what's coming. And we've come to maybe unconsciously expect that uh, we kind of get a pass on certain kinds of pain because of our unearned privilege. So this was one jolt. Uh, and then um, Chris, uh, Christiana, wrote to me this week, reminding me of Gibran's quote. That's, that's part of what pr uh, prompted me. And in reflecting on our reactions to what we're witnessing going on in Europe, she wrote, part of our suffering is the broken shell of feeling safe. Part of our outrage is that this could happen to us. So those of us who are white don't get a pass for being white. Those of us who live in the America or even in other parts of Europe or in England don't get a pass for being part of the West and whatever privilege we've had. And these are just two powerful currents in our culture right now and in our world. But I mention them uh, to bridge from last time and also to, to say that these things pierce the self-centered dream because this is what practice does. It doesn't answer the questions of how do we how do we undo white supremacy or how do we enter racial justice or how do we solve a problem with autocracy and war and those things need to be met and solved. Practice doesn't solve those. It provides us a way of cultivating who we are with ourselves and with each other so that we can meet them. This is the, the terrifying and radically liberating gift of Dharma practice, if we choose it fully. If we're willing to engage practice, truly. Are you willing to receive this kind of freedom, which means you'll have to face what it might cost you? And at the very bottom, I think the question is, you know, are we willing to love that much and take in that much love? Are we willing to expand our heart? Which is to say, are we willing to bear that much reality? You know, famously T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And in some ways, this is what our practice is about. Not just to bear up, but to meet fully and then know how to respond with, with intimacy and with... Uh, with wisdom and compassion. So in this way, your stone, your pain, excuse me, your pain, your difficulty, your suffering is the breaking of the shell that encloses your current way of understanding yourself and the world, most of which is unconscious. And the imagery that he uses that even uh, as a, as the stone of the foot must break, that its heart may stand in the sun in order to, to flourish to flower, to blossom, so must you know pain. And if we could keep our heart in wonder, he says, at the daily miracles of your life, in other words, basically, we keep our heart open. As Ram Das once said, our practice in some ways is really simply to learn how to keep our heart open in hell. Keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life. Your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. In the work that I did for many, many years in hospitals, in oncology units and in hospice and with HIV and AIDS, people would say, oh my God, isn't that terrible? 
well, yes, I saw very painful things, things that most people wouldn't want to see. But it became, I don't know what to call it. There's a horrible beauty in it, which expands the heart. This is some of the conversation that Christian and I were having. It expands the heart if we can stay with it. And Gibran says, and you would watch with serenity through the winters of your grief. There's a beauty and a joy in it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, facing the grief as we watch what looks like the disintegration of so many things around us or the challenges and fears. In, in so many memorial services, I've used that beautiful Basho um, poem, which you mostly all heard. When the temple bell stops, the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. It's a beautiful image. It's lovely. But what really does continue when the temple bell stops? What goes on when you've surrendered your preferences and instead chosen the life you've been given? What keeps coming out of the blossoming of every moment if we're willing to, to do that? Last week in the contemplative photo retreat, we were reminded of what we learned here on the islands and other places. Never turn your back on the ocean. Because when we're standing there, it's easy to get caught off, off guard. And it's the same teaching. Never turn your back on life. Face the things that are difficult. It doesn't mean rub your nose in it. Just don't turn your back on it so that you can open to a larger, larger space. Because when we lose things, when we lose someone dear, maybe a cherished idea, um, a profound hope we've held to, a dream that's guided our whole lifetime, a personal perspective that we've taken as truth, you know, a narrative we've come to believe about our country, about our friends, about who we think we are. When we lose anything dear, and in the process, feel like we're losing our way, what's left to guide us and nourish us? This is the core question of practice, is why we have practices, why we have some sort of faith. So we are given this complete life. We may have all our ideas about how it's incomplete or it should be different, but those are just our ideas. That's just the self-centered dream. We are given a complete life. Nothing is held back and there's nothing that's hidden. And Zen practice shows us this truth and is about learning how to care for this life that we've been given and how to care for each other, no matter how it goes. And this is the most fundamental commitment in practice. I will be responsible for my life and I will practice deeply, not turning away from it, no matter what happens, no matter how it goes. Not like I'll, I'll take care of my life and turn toward it as long as it goes this way. We're asked to appreciate and care for this life we've been given. It's a miracle. You've been given this immense miracle. We're, we're asked to love it, really. To find a spacious way to meet and to care for our lives Because when we do that, just with, like with people, we discover that when we truly love something and give our lives to it, or someone, and we know that love in return, either personally or, or life continually being generous to us, <clears throat> we discover something really important, that love is indestructible. And we have a chance to come to know this extraordinary truth in the face of some of the most shocking and, and unthinkable news we've been receiving and news that threatens to destroy the very heart of our lives. Lives that we previously sought as nourishing and consoling. And in this rich conversation I was having with Krishana, she, she also wrote to me, 
something so profound and it was reflective of what I've been teaching, but it was interesting to hear it coming back. She said, I realize that there's nothing in love with a capital L, nothing in love that is breakable. That's what I was just saying. It can only expand or contract. And my own individual heart, my particular conduit to the great love cannot possibly be broken either. People do break, of course, or terribly misshapen. But it's not the heart that breaks. And later on she said, I'm so aware that this is our work, our only work, the great work. And I was so moved by that because I could hear the echoes of what these teachings are about. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your small human understanding, but it doesn't break your heart. We sometimes might find ourselves, uh, what does Suzanne call it, rowing tied to the dock. But it's very similar to what W.S. Merwin, who died in the last few years, you know, in his beautiful retreat over on the North Shore of Maui, he says, we are asleep with compasses in our hands. Maybe that mudra is kind of nice, our compass right there in our belly. And and Suzanne also, and I think if Rod talked about this, taking small bites, you know, one little bit at a time, um, as we learn, as we step in, it's too difficult otherwise, uh, full of forgiveness and commitment, full of the commitment to practice, but also our continual forgiveness, one little bit at a time, which is like sitting, one sitting period at a time. You know, and Becky spoke about meeting unexpected situations uh, and trying to meet them with skillful means. CJ commented on this, allowing a natural response, not a fabricated response. Can we come from that Buddha that we enact by our sitting in silence? And W.S. Merwin also said late in his life, now all my teachers are dead except silence. And in that, Trudy came forward, you know, towards the end, avowing this visceral response she had to the, the eating uh, metaphor and invited this embodied addition to take the image a little further, to deepen it, to keep opening it, like the heart keeps opening. Another way of meeting the elephant in the room, so to speak, these exiled and shadowy energies that we have by getting to know them, by being intimate befriending, resting my head on the elephant. And knowing Trudy, you know, Suzanne playfully asked for a poem. And guess what? One came. And remembering that the Buddha, remember, likened Apamada to the elephant's footprint. Remember? Diligent mindful care. Elephant's footprint is the largest footprint in the forest. Here's the, here's the poem. Elephants don't need disparate sets of hands uh, tracing their oh-so-solid outlines to tell them what they are. Their sense of self is co-created from the entering earth beneath their sturdy feet from the grasses brushing them into being as they sway along ancestral roots, from the wind troubling, flapping ears as they collect the sounds around them. They can feel their outline in the dust tossed by themselves or by newborns clutching their ropey tails as they lead them into life, and by the questing tender tips of oh-so-sensitive trunks 
their own and those of tribe, particularly an intrinsically part of their world, they greet old friends and mourn their losses. Whilst we, two legs, wonder who and what we are, feeling like it, ours, it is our very separation that defines us. We resist being called into particularity and connection. Maybe we do not need to eat the elephant one delicate bite at a time. Maybe we could allow ourselves to dissolve into one of the many, all held within one footprint. Dogen spoke, as you've heard me say many times, of the intimacy with all things is our expression of, of awakening. To meet and be intimate. And Unman, some centuries later, spoke of the same thing as an appropriate response. Maybe that is one little bit at a time. But these two go hand in hand, maybe trunk in trunk. And with the inevitable pain that does come, with all the beauty and amazement of the world, as the inevitable time, pain does come, if we cannot turn away from it, maybe it would break the shell of our small understanding. And we might blossom, we might expand, our heart not broken, but blown open, accepting the seasons of our heart and of life, and find our way together all hill within one, one footprint. <clears throat> so please, uh, please come forward. My, my warning is, let's not play ain't it awful about the world. Let's not simply discuss current events and difficulties. What is your practice? What is the, the stone in the middle of the fruit that needs to be open to the sun? Where do you find yourself caught in the self-centered dream? Where is each moment, life as it is, a challenge for you? These are the places where practice will turn all of us in the directions to meet whatever needs to be met as fierce and challenging as it might be. We have Nelda. I think, I'm on, I think I'm unmuted, yes. Yeah, you're unmuted, I hear you. Yes, how are you, Flint? The pep back. Good. Um, so much to hold and so much truth in all that you said. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this with us. My heart just opened. And so when you ask, where is your practice? Lately, it is dealing with my perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And perfectionism really, for me, is just a symptom of a lot of other things. Um, shame. Um, a sense of inadequacy, uh, a distorted sense of who I am, a very uh, egocentric sense of what this is and should be doing. That's and one of those uh, shells that encloses the way you think you understand yourself. Exactly, yeah. And I have one of those too, so I understand that. <laughs> um, and so what a lovely practice, because um, I get deep into perfectionism and have to constantly, daily, catch myself and say, do what you can, 
with what you have under the circumstances and it's good enough. It's good enough. You're good enough because you are part of Buddha, this Buddha world, universe, this Buddha nature. And isn't it stunning in all its pain and delights? Mm -hmm. um, and aren't the delightful, wise lessons we learn through pain, although it'd be nice to have them come easier, you know? Some of them do. <laughs> and some it's of them all pain. It's just that right now there's a good bit of it. You know, the antidote to perfectionism that I've used as a touchstone is wholeheartedness. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be perfect, but can I be wholehearted? Mm, thank you. Thank because you. I've been driven by perfectionism so much in my life and, and created my own pain out of it. But if I can be wholehearted, uh, sometimes that allows me to just do my best uh, one moment at a time in the deep intimacy of not turning away. And I just want to share one little thing more that really started me on the perfectionism path. I so have mm. this vision of when you and Peg arrive in April, that the Appomattox grounds be covered with flowers and just so beautiful <laughs> and just, you know, just this heavenly vision. And someone the other morning and we were sitting in Zaza and said, why don't you be the flower? And I thought, oh, there it is. There it is. Thank you. So thank you for letting me share. And thank you so much for this time with you. I love that image because the uh, when I see everyone arriving on screen and certainly in person, that is the, <laughs> you are the flowers opening to the sun. Since I drug you into this, Christiana, would you raise your hand? I wanted to thank you for the prompts that guided me because there's so much of it that was important. And I appreciate your letting me share some of what our conversation began earlier. Um, I think you're muted again now, but I just wanted to check on if there's some part of the conversation you wanted to offer back. I mean, we've heard what I've said. And there may not be, I just wanted to engage you since I, like I said, drug you into this. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I had something, I had an idea and I wanted to check this out um, while I was washing the dishes just before we met. And I was thinking about, um, you know, we share the work with hospice and AIDS and oncology together. And I was thinking about, um, which I never really gotten quite clear before, that there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. And that I think so many of us are um, responding to the current events with a huge amount of empathy, which can threaten to drown us. And you know, and I was thinking about that I never, I never felt drowned when I was with patients. You know, I, I somehow managed to keep the empathy in check so that I could be useful, you know. Um, so anyway, so I just, I wanted, I wanted to see what you thought of that, the difference between empathy and compassion. Uh, curiously, I was in a, a conference in, when I was in Madison a few years ago, and Suzanne was sitting right next to me actually at this conference. And it was Richie Davidson and the Dalai Lama's physician and several other of the Matthew Ricard and some of the researchers who did some of the brain research on empathy and compassion. And they were talking about this difference. Huh that some of the original brain studies that were done on empathy in which you would see someone harmed in a minor way but harmed nonetheless and they would measure what it was like to be empathic and feel it and then they asked matthew ricard when he was i know i'm not doing this justice but anyway 
they would say, now switch from empathy to compassion. Mm. And they watched the shift in his brain. Wow. And the place that it went was from places in your brain that anticipate fear and pain and difficulty to the place in your brain where love comes. Wow. Exactly what you talked about. Wow. And then they asked him while it was in the MRI, mm. would you switch back to compassion, um, to empathy? He said, no, why would I do that? Mm. I want to stay with compassion. It's too painful. Mm. So what you're speaking about from your own experience is actually documented in this way. Wow. And there's a way in which empathy is a gateway because we want to feel sometimes what others feel and, and so we don't miss them as interpersonal connections began there. But if we stay just with empathy, your word was drown. Mm -hmm. And it's what you spoke about in terms of the heart not actually breaking, but maybe expanding and contracting. Um, as we find that which is indestructible, despite some of the things that we've witnessed and uh, born witness to which most people would not find so appealing. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate your, your, your teaching and your willingness to be conversant about this. Mm. Thanks. Lisa. Okay. Am I unmuted? Yes. So, <clears throat> yeah, the topics of interdependence and presence and dying and compassion are very close to my heart right now. And um, I'm, I have another friend of 40 years who's in hospice care right now. And when she called me in fear and anxiety, I was able to meet her calmly because of this practice and to be fully present for her because of this practice. What also came out of that was this amazing unfolding of connection. Her minister, Mark Scrabbitz, who turns out to have worked with you and met Peg, called me and talked to me for 30 minutes. I mean, I could recognize his generosity in that. And then um, quickly, the spaces between us, my friend and all these connections of a lifetime um, just fell away. I mean, I was deeply connected with people I had known 40 years ago but hadn't seen for a while. I could be in awe at my friend who had decided to quit trying, no more, not another surgery. And she's frantically rushing around, um, worried about a family from Afghanistan that she's trying to help. And, you know, what if she can't get it together to do this one last piece for them before she can't? And as you recall these uh, beautiful stories and these priceless friendships and the losses, what are you feeling right now? I feel um, awe. I feel amazement. Um, I feel gratitude. I feel compassion that. So these things for the, for the connection for this, it's just beyond words. 
Right. And you've used a few words, thank goodness, because we have to communicate. But I think right. you're, you're speaking in some ways about the shape of love. Yeah. And the way that it's the shape inside of you. And ultimately, that's what we're left with. Yeah. It's, it's Even, yeah. In particular. Even when we can't be physically present for one another, it's as though we are. I mean, it's almost as though there's just no separation. Well, as we realize what, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it a little simplistically, but the sort of the one heart, one mind, one body of, of life. Yeah. We're not separate from. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you. <clears throat> Ed, next. Okay. Am I unmuted? You are. Long time no see. <laughs> That's only if you believe in the illusion of time. I know. Uh, <laughs> um, what I what I do believe in, and and what's been said in, in numerous ways uh, today, which is just um, reinforcing the value of the experience that we're in right now with these inquiry sessions and. Um, how even though there might not be touching physicality uh, connection, you're not left alone. Um, these things create a, a wonderful connection. And um, as the universe divine would have it, there's always something that's perfectly said, done, expressed, or brought to mind or to heart in these sessions. And um, you know, one of the things that we talked about last week, uh, a few days ago, and um, again this morning is as we're living our life, and especially when you, you look at the statements, um, life as it is, moment by moment, um, meeting what is out there, um, you know, what's brought to mind or what's reinforced is that there is that acknowledgement, and that acknowledgement, I guess, is that first step to being able to meet life and or within meeting life comes acknowledgement and um what was very prevalent um not only last week but various times throughout life is that engagement is that thing that seems to open the door and um lights that path for progress or change um and more importantly that change empirically inside where that's where the difference starts and uh, things that you said today just kind of help to flesh that out some more that there is no way while you're alive in this body to exist without some level or some experience of harm, hurt, or pain. Um, but the thing that makes it miraculous and uh, is that safety net or something that should encompass it is that your pain is no less wondrous than your joy. Um, that, that just makes my heart swell. And, um, makes my eyes smile and my mouth smile and everything. And again, it's not all about pain and you don't have to be swamped by that. Um, and I do love being swept away by the joy aspects of it. Um, and then the Gibran quote, which kind of puts the icing on the cake that you can uh, watch with, with serenity through the winters of your grief, uh, the immensity of that statement. Um, it's like carrying a, a Mack truck um, in your arms. Uh, well, you, and I, you, know, you and I spoke a little bit about it because we both watched that conversation between Resma and Angel. And as a black man and as a white man, we sat there trying to come to terms with what they were saying. Yeah. And what you hold in your arms isn't the same as what I hold in my arms. And yet we're inextricably, inextricably linked in that fabric. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's marvelous beyond words. And that's the thing that helps allow for understanding and, uh, and keeping that thread whole, you know, as, as we weave that cloth of life. And like you said, there's no way that you're going to know empirically what my life was, um, or is in certain ways, and vice versa. I'm never going to know what it's like to be white. Um, but yeah. now, go ahead. And yet. And yet, yes. And yet, 
uh, dot, dot, dot. Um, and again, there's the smile through the beard. Um, and the thing that um, was in my mind, as you said, um, where we're at today in these times is um, the Buddha, the Buddha of silence. And um, what, I, what I saw in great, great detail and reality um, this past week was that that Buddha of silence is what um, can allow for absolute vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And when that absolute vulnerability is present, that also allows for an ultimate gain. And um, I um, thank you um, for, for everything connected with that. Thank you for coming forward so wholeheartedly and for uh, the engagement that, that you offer and that you, um, that you invite. Ahuiho. We, <laughs> we have Gail next. Hi, Gail. Hi, Flint. Heart's beating. Mm. But it's a good thing. It is. It is a little fast. Um, I too was struck just like Ed with this with this phrase that the pain is no less wondrous than the joy. And um, I was listening yesterday, I think it was to an NPR interview that kind of touches on what we're talking about. And this was a woman uh, at Stanford who studies addiction. And what she said really struck me because she said that, you know, as human beings, we run toward distraction from pain and all addictions you know, kind of arise from that. And, um, you know, every addiction, it could be technology, it could be, um, it, it could be drugs, it could be anything. And then she said something very interesting. She said the only way for this addiction to stop ramping up so that we are more and more trying to distract ourselves with pleasure and joy and run from the suffering she says, is to actually turn toward the suffering. This is what I heard. Mm -hmm. And she says, even in small ways, but you actually have to meet it. Mm -hmm. And then your brain, this is what's interesting because she's a scientist. She says, regulates. It's almost as if you have too much, let's say pleasure or distraction. It um, goes into an imbalance. Mm -hmm. And that we need the actual moments of, 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 of what we might call pain or discomfort, or it could even be small, let's say uh, doing a task you really don't wanna do, but needs to be done or exercising when you don't feel like it, you know? And then what happens is the brain automatically balances out into this equilibrium. And that's the only way you can't keep chasing this you know happiness making thing you actually have to turn toward the other and i was just so struck with that um mm -hmm. and it reminds yeah, so me so much of suffering is that uh, demand that life be otherwise or the fearful apprehension that it will never work out or that we can't do it yeah. but if we are together like this like Ed was just saying, the beauty of inquiry is that when we come together, uh, things can be possible. So thank you for offering that. And thank you for reminding us of those things. Yeah. And it reminded me of the Dogen uh, quote, intimacy with all things or the 10,000 things. Right. The, to me, it made me realize that the pain is also the doorway. It's, it's all, yeah. nothing's outside of this love that you're talking about. The shorthand version is turn towards life and say, Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And we have Chris next. Hello, Chris. It has been a long time since I've seen you. I think you remuted. I'll unmute you, Chris. There you go. Yeah, long time, Flint. First time I've been to this um, 
Tuesday night session. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, I, I was inspired to come by your words on the email. Oh, well, I'm glad. <laughs> maybe, um, I'll, maybe I'll get to see you in a few months. Yeah. Nice. I, I guess um, I'm sure this has been answered 50 times, 100 times over, but I'm a slow learner. Um, I guess my question is about the endlessness of suffering. It seems like the well gets deeper and deeper personally and in the world. And, you know, whether it was tribal warfare or pharaohs in Egypt or Herod or whatever, Norman conquests or Pol Pot or whatever, you know, we never seem to learn. What's, what's the first noble truth? Uh, suffering, yeah. Yeah. Uh, life is characterized by this sort of dissatisfaction yeah. and difficulty that that that's part of the deal yeah i know i know the words like you were saying earlier we say these words mm -hmm. um you know and i keep thinking one you know we you know each day life as it is but you know life as it is does seem to be a bit crap a lot of the time and it's like i always have this dream there's going to be an ethical enchantment where we're gonna you know get it <laughs> that's, then, part, you know, that's part of what Gail was saying. That? Should I hold on to that hope, or should that's I just? Part of what go... Gail was saying, you can't grab one side without creating the other. Like the yin yang symbol, if you want all the light, this dark's going to show up. If you go into the dark, there's light waiting for you. It's it's always as long as it's a dualistic way of approaching life. I want the good, I don't want the bad. It's an endless, endless struggle, as you know. You're going to get all of it in equal measure. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you appreciate it? You're going to get a lot of good. I don't mean happiness. You're going to get the fullness of life. It's a miracle. And you're going to get difficulty, sure. Let yourself, and if you have trouble seeing it, see through the eyes of your friends. Let others hold your hand. That's sometimes all that gets us through, you know. But it makes a big difference. That's why we come together. That's why we meet like this. To help remind each other, it's, we can do this, we can do this, it's possible. And I know that's been a struggle for you a lot of times, that you, you uh, go under easily. But if you keep reaching a hand up, somebody will grab it and pull you up. And practice will help you remember it. It doesn't solve the problem, it helps you remember what's possible. And maybe it helps you see the good in you. That sometimes you lose sight of. Keep at it. Oh, hi, Flint. There you are. Yes. Hi. Um, so Saturday I had a, a big experience of um, self-centered dream awakening that I was not aware of, and. Um, had to do with my Italian class, small class, three people, three students, one teacher. We've been together for four years, so we're kind of close. It's a beautiful little group. I practiced for like an hour before the group. Um, and um, I we had the, the lesson. Um, we we uh, write sentences that we get corrected on. We read them. And I'm really happy with my sentences. But my pronunciation was really rough on one of the long words. And one of the other students said, oh, Rosemary, you know, on Google Translate, you can do this. And I tried this. Well, my sense of where I was, my competitiveness really came out and I shut down. I couldn't hear her helping me because I'm and I, I didn't know that this was this was so um, deep in me that I had to kind of stand out and um so that was I, the shell of your understanding that broke in the pain ex exactly and it was pretty painful because i you know i i had a hard time coming back in and i, I think i was pretty gracious and saying thank you but i was like okay you know <laughs> but now you have something different to thank her for that's true not that's the google really translate true. part yeah the way that she was the only teacher at that moment Absolutely. But not about Italian. No. About no. we're we're all in this together and it's it's just it's such a lovely little group. And I think 
I've always in a family always felt I wasn't in it. So I made I always make myself out of it by this competitive thing. So well, yes. here, here, here's your assignment. Okay, find a way to tell her thank you about this different thing. In Italian. Oh, my goodness. Okay, without Google Translate. No, you can use anything you want. <laughs> okay. But, it has, but see, it has meaning for you. Yes. Yeah, that's when you that's, learn the language. Absolutely. Of true. liberation. The yes. Freedom. Yes. It was a great teaching. Thank you. And on that note, we'll do our final um, uh, chant together, which is the acknowledgement of that unbrokenness that we've been uh, uh, that we've been talking about. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Thank you very much, everyone. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much, Flint, and thank you all so much for being here. And uh, if you'd like to make a contribution to Appamada, please do go to the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. And there you'll see an opportunity to make donations towards Flint of PEG or make a one-time contribution, or you can sign up for regular contributions, whichever you'd like to do. But thank you all so much for all your support and for being here. And if you'd like to continue to meet and share, then please do stay right where you are and we'll continue for a further 30 minutes on the virtual porch. I look forward to seeing some of you there. Thank you. Thank you all so much.